Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast, reading about Jesus, week 35. We continue our Old Testament reading in Job 6. AJ, what are your initial uh, initial thoughts? We got into a little bit of the back and forth with Job and one of his friends last week, but uh, all the reading for this week was just straight up back and forth. Friend one, Job, friend two, Job, friend three, Job responds again. Um, it it was a lot. You kind of mentioned last week, Aaron, that it's kind of Shakespeare or whatever, and it's like, it's, I don't know, It's it gets a little wordy, and sometimes you don't know what they're talking about, but each section makes a point. Uh, I definitely struggled a bit more this week than last week, just because there was so much of it, but mm-hmm. um, AJ... What did you think of everything? This is a new segment on our show where AJ <laughs> shares what he thinks about everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, You're so chatty. Um, yeah, actually, you might not know this, but people refer to him as Chatty Kathy. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you about Job. I was just listening to Job's friends kind of get more frustrated with him, being like, come on, Job, take our advice. You're definitely wrong here. And he's like, no. Nope. Not going to do it. I'm right. You guys are wrong. And that's what I took from this. God doesn't just give blessing. He gives suffering sometimes too, or allows it. Yes. I had no further thoughts than Job. <clears throat> okay. I think that's a good thought, because I didn't have a whole lot of thoughts either, because I didn't know what to think about a lot of this. But when I thought about it in a more zoomed-out fashion... I had a couple thoughts, so that's more than zero, maybe two more or three, but we'll see. But one thought I had, Job in his situation, like if you look at the, the entirety of it, Job lived well, was faithful to God, you know, was a man, you know, more or less, not that he was perfect, but he wasn't like sinning all the time, like he was considered righteous. So he lived well for the Lord. Tragedy comes, now he's suffering. In my opinion, he's not su- he's suffering okay, but not great. He's kind of, not that I would be any better, but he's kind of complaining. He's very like despairing. He just kind of wishes he were dead. So he's not handling the suffering great. Again, not that I would do any better than Job, but he's struggling with the suffering. He did really well for the Lord in normal life. That was one thing I thought about was like, it's different to live well for the Lord in normal life. So like, it's a whole other thing to live well for the Lord in suffering. And just cause you're good at one doesn't mean you're good at the other. I mean, maybe, well, yeah, I don't know. Every situation is different, but it's like, it doesn't directly translate. There's something very different about the suffering. So that was one thing I was thinking about. The other thing I was thinking about was again, Job, his life, uh, once stuff start, started going very poorly, his wife, not great, says curse God and die. That's not overly helpful. He's going back and forth a lot with his friends here in his most painful, trying times. They're not really any help or comfort. So as we have Job in his suffering and his friends are just not much help, um, for example, Job 16, uh, like 1 and 2, 
I've heard many such things. Miserable, miserable comforters are you all. So like they're not helping him out. He's not feeling any better. He says, if I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? So he's not doing like he has zero help in his suffering. And he also feels like God has completely turned his back on him. And he's completely just thrown to the wind just by himself with nobody. God's turned his face from him. His friends are useless. His wife is useless. And that made me think it's like, well, who, who else was in suffering, uh, you know, in their greatest time of need where everybody that they were counting on was useless or abandoned them. It's like, well, that was Jesus in his suffering. And if you think about it, the difference, Job in his suffering this dude's talking an awful lot and complaining an awful lot and saying all kinds of stuff. He's all over the place. And you think about Jesus was silent before his accusers and was almost completely silent. I mean, he said a few things uh, as he was you know, going through his most painful, uh, tormented time of life. But that just made me think of like the difference of obviously Jesus is perfect and perfectly endured suffering and like had a perfect um, orientation towards God through the suffering, whereas Job uh, seems to be struggling a bit more with it. So those are some of the thoughts I had and kind of differences as far as living for God, suffering for God, either well or poorly, and maybe some examples of what that looks like. I really appreciate your Christological reading of the book of Job. I think that your explanation there is a good example of some of the things that we should be thinking about when we're reading the Old Testament. And I I would just want to draw your attention to one piece that adds a little bit to your observations there. And that's in chapter 9, when Job is responding to his friend, and he's pointing out that no one can stand justified before God. Anyone who goes in God's court is going to leave guilty primarily because they're, they are human beings standing before the perfect and almighty God. So in chapter 9, verse 32, he says, For he, God, is not a man like me that I can answer him, that we can take each other to court. There is no mediator between us to lay his hand on both of us. And, and I think as you... Think about Jesus, the way that he's um, a sufferer like Job. He becomes a sufferer like Job, becomes a human like Job, so he can stand as the mediator between God and man. So what Job is sensing is a real problem, and I think that's one of the benefits of reading a book like Job is even the most innocent of person um, who's experiencing suffering can't stand before God and be vindicated apart from a mediator who can do that, which is provided in Jesus. No, that's good. I'm glad you pulled those yeah. verses out because that obviously, yeah, definitely adds to it. And that was the other thing I forgot to say is like they both were suffering despite being innocent. And mm -hmm. they knew they, both of them knew they were innocent. I mean, obviously Job being a fallen human has some guilt, but like overall in the situation, you know, he was innocent. That's not why he was suffering. Yeah. And, and in both cases, you know, in all our reading for this week, Job repeatedly tells his friends, God is the one who is doing this to me. 
I know that. I don't know why. And it reminds me of Jesus praying to the Father, you know, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours. These sort of things where he too knows that ultimately the suffering he was about to undergo was coming from the Father, not because of anything that Jesus did, but ultimately for God's glory and the good of humanity. No, I don't know how relevant it is, but like, I'm probably not going to be able to fully articulate it because I haven't fully thought through it. But like you have somebody like Job who, I you know, I don't know what his early life or midlife or whatever was. It, it seems like he was generally kind of always righteous or whatever. Again, not that he was perfect, but he didn't have a background, you know, maybe like the Apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul. And... I don't know. I, I just, I don't know what to think about that exactly because you've got Job who maybe was kind of generally always righteous and followed God um, and was a very upright man. But then when trials came, you know, he's, he's struggling pretty well with, with all this stuff and uh, kind of, like I said, kind of negative, kind of despairy uh, with a lot of his stuff. And then I was thinking about the apostle Paul like the first half of his life was completely different than Job. He was, you know, very awful in killing Christians and uh, an enemy of God. And then, you know, but then kind of his second half was kind of a combination of living very well for God, but also suffering very well for God. I think probably Paul, uh, you know, is one of the best examples other than, you know, other than Jesus being the best example, I think Paul's one of the best examples probably of suffering well for God. So I don't know. I didn't know what to think of that, but I just feel like a lot of that, I think, I don't know. There's just a lot more depth to Paul since he was so far on one end and then swings back over to the other end and comes to know the Lord after such a dark beginning, essentially. But like, I think, I feel like that matters, or at least it matters for Paul and I've always thought maybe everybody always knows this or th- or thinks this. I just don't know that I've heard it articulated, and I've never articulated it. But I feel like Paul's beginning for how great Paul kind of became and how much God used him. I feel like he had to have the beginning. He had to keep him humble because he knew who he used to be and just how like dark and low of a person he was capable of being apart from God. Like I feel like that kept him humble for all the great things he was doing and all the great work he was doing for the Lord. Like he wasn't just Mr. Born with a silver spoon, perfect, great, righteous guy. And then just got better and better and better and better and better his whole life and just did the best things ever for God. Like, no, he started out almost as far as you can on the other side, an enemy of God at that turned. So I don't know, again, these aren't fully articulated thoughts, but just kind of some stuff I was thinking about and kind of the differences of how they suffered in the second half of their life and then what the first half of their life looked like and how they were just polar opposites. And they also seemed to endure the suffering somewhat oppositely. Yeah, and you could probably add characters like Moses and other people to these comparisons as well. Um, but yeah, you're probably onto something there. Paul is a little bit of a tough case because he was right about a lot of things related to God and is reading the Old Testament and looking at the example of Phineas, who's killing individuals who are defying God, and he feels like he's doing the same thing. 
but you're right, he faces suffering, and even though it's not easy for him, he'll ask God to remove the suffering, but then he accepts that God's grace is sufficient, and maybe that's a little bit of what we see in Job. I I would want to say that despair and genuinely realizing the suffering that's in your life is not wrong or sinful, um, but we definitely see Job despairing a lot more than we see Paul, and maybe Job lingers in that despair too long. It's it's hard to say, but he does seem over and over again like he just wants to say, I'd be better dead than alive, and that's not a good place to stay ever, though it might be an accurate articulation of what someone's feeling and experiencing. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was unsure of. That seemed like, I don't know, kind of gray to me for the parts where he's like, I wish I would never been born. I just wish God would kill me now. Like, you know, I don't, I don't know what to yeah. think of that. Well, I would just bring it back to your comparison between Job and Jesus, where this is actually a similarity where Jesus says, God, you have forsaken me. That's what Job is saying just in long form, right? Yeah, yeah I guess so. Maybe, it, maybe it's the long form that's throwing me off because I'm like, He's, he's talking a lot. Again, I wouldn't do any better than Job, that's for sure, but I don't know. I just don't know what to make of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough, and we'll keep reading the, the book of Job, and maybe each of us can consult a few extra study Bible notes to help inform our thinking about it so we'll have a little bit more knowledge of what other Christians are saying instead of just our impressions as we read. I don't know if I'll have time to or not, but I'll give it a shot. My thoughts were a little bit more zoomed out. I And I think that's that's a good way of reading the Bible, especially when we're going through it so quickly. It's almost the only way you can read it on one level is just by looking at the big picture. Speaking of which, AJ, as we transition to 1 Corinthians, you mentioned that you had several questions for me from 1 Corinthians 1 through 9, our reading. Uh, because we didn't discuss 1 Corinthians last week, we're kind of just starting the book at the start here, and we read all the way through chapter 9 for this week, I believe. And um, you mentioned there were some things in the text that you wanted to get into. Well, first of all, it seems like the Corinthians are an interesting bunch. Um, You know, the way just paying attention to the way Paul addresses the people, the church there, it seems like there's a lot of different issues going on. And the letter so far, 1 Corinthians, seems just kind of a unique splattering of just different issues that Paul writes these, I don't know, what do you, would you call them, like little essays or little responses, or it's like, hey, you wrote to me about this, here's what I think about this, or I already told you guys this, why aren't you doing that, or yep. this is what you need to do now. So it just seemed really interesting to read, because you kind of have to fill in the gaps a little bit about what's going on. Exactly. Uh, and then, so I have... Sp- specific questions about yeah. of those, but it, it's just an interesting layout because it seems like there's just these unrelated sometimes, you know, oh, of course it's all related to, you know, love and unity and blah, 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 but like they're not, it, the letter doesn't necessarily flow a certain way. It's just, all right, I stopped talking about that. Now I'm going to start talking about this. Exactly. So it's not like Paul just was like, you know, I, I just want to write a, a letter addressing a theological topic for a church. 
instead, this letter probably takes place in a matrix of like probably four letters that are going back and forth with the Corinthians. And he's responding to issues that they've asked about in a report that he has heard. So he's not writing one sermon to them. So it's not really like the book of Hebrews where you could say there's one driving point. If you read Hebrews, it only takes like 45 minutes. It's like a sermon. First Corinthians is like a smattering of issues that are troubling the life of the church at Corinth. And I I don't know exactly what we should imagine when we hear that term, the church at Corinth. Part of me wonders if there are like four or five different house churches of like 30 to 50 people, and these house churches all have a relationship with one another, and Paul is responding to them as a collective. So maybe it's not like all of the issues in one church, like maybe that's not just one church with all these issues. Maybe it's a bunch of different house churches with different issues, but Paul can communicate with them as a collective because these Christians in Corinth certainly would have known each other and had relationships. So I think sometimes we read a letter like this and we think about like our size church is like about the size of a, a big house church. Like, man, would we really have all these issues happening simultaneously? Right. That would be really, uh, maybe, but I also wonder if there are multiple house churches that he's addressing, but they're a collective, the church at Corinth. Okay. Yeah. That's helpful to think about. So in chapter three, Paul is telling the people not to worry about who, which spiritual leader to follow. You know, some people were trying to say that they were following the teaching or the instruction of Paul or Apollos or some of the other of God's servants there. And then he gets to this part where he's talking about laying the foundation and other people are building on it. So it doesn't really matter. We're all working towards building this foundation. And then he describes how we build the foundation with our lives and we build with these different materials, straw, hay, gold, silver, jewels. And at the coming day or the last day, I forget what the term is, it will be exposed what material is lasting, what, what in your life is, is lasting towards building this foundation. Is that just a lesson? Is there something that... I know I've heard you say before, Aaron, that right now God's kind of preparing us to exist in his kingdom. And I was thinking about that when I was reading this passage. I just was curious if you wanted to maybe go in that direction or kind of expound on what what Paul's saying here and how we can read this and think about our lives and how we live today to continue to build on the same foundation that Paul's talking about here. Am I thinking about that correctly, first of all? I think you're right. So Paul Paul uses in this text multiple analogies to describe the church. So in chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, he talks about the church as God's field. And then in chapter 3, verses 9 through 15, he talks about the church as God's building. And we're all contributing to building on the foundation, which is Christ. And what we build with will be put to the test of fire, right? And I have a friend writing a dissertation on this passage right now, and he's suggesting that we should understand this according to ancient building codes, where the building inspector would come in with a torch and examine everything. So the testing by fire 
there, there are some translation issues in here as well, but the testing by fire is an examination of your building work by the master builder, Jesus Christ. And the things that remain are only the things that are up to code that conform to Christ. So that's one way of understanding this text. Another way of under, understanding it is that as we're building through the works that we're doing, um, if our work survives, if it's in keeping with the foundation of the same stuff, then you receive your reward for it. But if you've added onto Christ things that aren't in keeping with Christ, those things will be burned away, even though you won't be. You're you're going to be saved, uh, but through fire. So through a purging of all that is not in keeping with Christ from your life. And I I think that's a little bit of what Paul is getting at as he's preparing people to think about living in this life with a view toward the resurrection. So he says, you're working, your labor is not in vain because you'll be raised. Even though some of our labors won't pass the building inspection. So I think the way I'd want to apply this in individually first is that we need to shape our lives according to Christ and recognize that as we grow to be like Christ, we are preparing ourselves for life in the kingdom, life in the new creation. Um, so you're gaining a thicker existence. So read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. These sorts of things might help our imaginations. But Paul primarily is thinking of the local church. And I what what I want to say there is there's we we have to avoid the kind of disputes that the Corinthian church was getting into where they're following different people, Apollos, Paul, you know, Randos. We we have to say ultimately we want a church that's built on Christ, not Christ plus something. And this is something we've talked about a lot lately at our church is all of us have different preferences for certain things. We have different um, quibbles over third level matters of doctrine. We have different kinds of music that we like. We have different styles of preaching that we like. And we can start to build a church based on all of those preferences instead of on that which is in keeping with Christ, which transcends all of our preferences. So the application for our church, I think, would be to say that we need to be a Christ centered church, not a Christ plus whatever I like kind of a church. Paul would not like us to be a, a Christ plus my preferences church. He wants us to be a Christ church. Does that get what you're asking at? Absolutely. Yeah, that was helpful. I was, I think, making a connection to maybe another passage where the straw and wood or whatever would get burned up in the trials by fire. Yep. What I forget where that is, but... I think I was making that connection. I, I want to think it's just, in Peter. Okay. I could be wrong. No, so that was helpful for that distinction to, you know, Paul's preparing us for the last day, the coming day, which is the resurrection. But also we have, you know, he's talking about the local church here. And so we should be reading that. And we would be if we, you know, are reading all the way through. Yeah. Now I want to add that he talks about it with a, a warning. So he punctuates this with a warning. So imagine if you're saying, I'm building our church on the foundation of Christ with all my preferences. So I'm making our church to be and Christ's church to be what I want it to be. And those things are going to be burned away by fire. Here's the warning. Don't you know 
Or don't you yourselves know that you're God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. So it's almost like he's saying, if you're building the church around you, what you care about, your preferences, that's going to be destroyed and nothing will remain. Don't you know that you're God's temple? You all are, plural, right? And if you are constructing this church in a way that will lead it to destruction by fire, God will destroy that person. You know, so so it's a, this strong warning against the divisive leadership and attitudes within a church. So that's why I'd say these things are really, really important and why we've been stressing things so much here. It's not that we're trying to take our church in a particular direction or something. It's to try to help people see that there's room for a variety of preferences to coexist and for us all to say that that's not that there's not one preference that's God's preference within our biblical foundations of of something. You know, so for example, I think some churches can say, okay, we really like having announcements at the start of the service instead of the end. And you just have to pick one, right? You can't, I mean, you could do some at both and try to make everyone mad at the same time or have, you know, like you'll try to please everyone, but actually anger everybody. You have to pick one. But what I want us to avoid is saying God prefers for us to do announcements at the start or God prefers for us to do them at the end. So that that's what I'm trying to work on in a lot of my teaching and preaching as of late is to say your preference, God probably does delight in, but not at the exclusion of someone else's preference. Um, so if you prefer that we only uh, chanted the Psalms and we didn't do any other kinds of music, like John Calvin did. I think God delights in the chanting of the Psalms, but I think God also delights in a a massive pipe organ playing music written by a Christian, not the just the words of the Bible. So that that's what I'm I'm trying to push against. Live and let live. Again, that's not what I'm going for. <laughs> oh. Because there are out of bounds of what we know God doesn't appreciate. And, as using the phrase I've been using, there's a gravitational center that holds our things together. So it's not just that we are dismissively not caring about what someone else's preferences are, but we're finding how our preferences can coexist in the larger palette of delight that God has for our activities before him. Talking about being in the resurrection and on the new earth, new heavens, new earth. There's this weird verse that Paul uses in chapter 6, verse 3, where he makes a comment about judging angels. What is he talking about here? Is he just making a point? Is he actually explaining something that that will occur? Or do we judge angels by the way we live now somehow? What's going on here? He's talking about resolving disputes. Yeah, I think this is what I want to say about that. Paul is giving us a signpost in the fog, as one scholar talks about anything in the Bible pointing to the new creation. It's We know we're headed in a direction, and it's kind of like that little mask symbol for a theater somewhere, Where, but that's not what the actual people will look like, or like the restroom signs with the figures, and you can tell, yeah, this is a men's restroom or a women's, but it doesn't look exactly like a man or a woman. Thankfully, you know, that would be bad. Um, but it's a signpost pointing us in a direction. 
and we don't know fully what to make of it. And it's maybe not intended to do anything more other than to say that uh, in the new creation world, God has a role for Christians that is beyond what we can really comprehend right now. And Paul uses it, though, in a specific way. If you guys are going to have this task in the future, you should be able to do this smaller task, less important task right now, right? So that's Exactly. Yep. And, and I think that fits with a lot of what he says in 1 Corinthians. You have new creation life now. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians. The old is passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You're a new person. You have the new creation life of the Spirit in you. So you should live in this world as you will in the new creation. When Paul talks about things like this, about things in the new creation or how things will be in the new creation, is he where's he getting that from? Is that from passages in the Old Testament that he would have known? Or Jesus is, is speaking in his ear well, directly to him. I mean, it could be through direct revelation. It could be through good and natural reasoning. Uh, the language of judging here probably draws on other texts of scriptures that speak of the saints ruling with Christ and implied maybe over all other created things. Um, I think it's it, all of the above. Yeah, it's interesting to chase down the exact nature of the statements here, but ultimately they're just drawing us to understand the reality that by nature of their divine calling, the believers within the church have a responsibility to rule now as they will in the final day. Because I always wonder about that when uh, there's a passage when somebody's talking about something that we don't know about and the way that they're talking about it is like, well, somehow they know a lot about this and they're just kind of referencing it. But it seems like they, if they wanted to, they know a lot more about it that they could say, but they don't because that's not the exact point of what they're talking about. Yeah, and and Paul is a little bit sly sometimes. He'll say something like, I once knew a man who entered into the third heaven. Whether it was in a vision or not, I don't know. And he's like talking about himself. And he'll talk about things that he's seen that he's not permitted to speak about. So really? it seems like God has given him visions. He's given him revelation. You know, Paul Paul tells people, I've spoken in tongues more than any of you. I prophesy. Like, he he's a remarkable guy who's had remarkable insight through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. So I I would say probably there's a mix of that. There's a mix of just his studies as a Jew in Jewish literature. Uh, probably a lot of things combined. This isn't really a question, but and it's dumb because it's one Love of those it. things. Yeah, but I just noticed that it, or was thinking that there's so much stuff that's just all relational advice or teaching about how you relate to the other and of course of, of course that's what it is because that's it the church is made up of people and yeah. that's what that is so of course it is and so it's a dumb observation but also it's kind of like it reinforces the importance of how you relate to people that's yep. what the church is relating yeah. to people yeah and if you're bad at that that's a problem like and it causes these problems yeah and you're right over over and over again paul is dealing with divisions between people and what I would like to point out is that Paul doesn't tell them, go start a different church with the people who agree with you. Right. And he doesn't even necessarily say, you all need to uh, come to arrive at uniformity here, but that you all need to pursue unity mm -hmm. in the gospel 
on the foundation of Jesus Christ. So I, I think Paul would be remarkably sad about the way that some churches and denominations look at each other and talk about each other as if they're not true churches, when really he would say, why are, why are there two separate churches on the same block who believe almost the same thing, but 50 years ago there was a church split over the Bible translation they were going to use? I, I think Paul would never have recommended that that church split. I, and I think that's the case more often than we'd like to admit. So I did a ministry trip in Michigan, and it was like every podunk rural Michigan town had three Baptist churches, and there were church splits that happened 50 years ago, and all the pastors were friends, but the families had generational memory, and none of them can pay their pastors full-time. None of them are taking care of their building and property. And I'm thinking, why wouldn't you guys like sell one of your properties, merge your churches, you'd be able to pay two out of the three guys full time. Like, come on. I I just don't get it. I And I get that there would be a lot of hard work there. I understand it's tough, but if we're just looking at it the way and asking, what would the Apostle Paul say about this? I think he'd be deeply grieved over those things. And, and I think he'd be deeply grieved when people leave their church because of like a preference issue that they don't like. He's never recommended that. He he recommends you send heretics out of your church. You send people sleeping with their mother or stepmothers. That's 1 Corinthians 5. We read that this week. He he recommends you send them out of the church, but he doesn't recommend you leave because you're really digging Apollos and someone else is really digging Paul. Mm. Prostitutes are okay though. Right? No, you guys have like are former pagans and you've been involved in cult prostitution all the time, I want you to stop it. Like, and if there are other people in the church, you need to stop it too. Um, you need to repent of that. But this guy who's sleeping with his stepmother, he's refusing to repent, and you guys are celebrating this. Like, you need to get him out of there. Sexual issues was a pretty broad range of topics too because you've got that extreme situation You've got people who are visiting prostitutes constantly. And then you have these people who are advocating for no sex in marriage, too. Yeah. And so it's Paul had his you know, work cut out for him to just address. And maybe that makes more sense with the different house churches, right? Because that's such yeah. a, you know, these extremes. Yep. Well, and I think if you're looking at the historical background, and I'd be interested in what you think about this, Matthew, but... In, in this ancient world, there's like platonic thought that's saying the body is evil and the spirit is good. So our main goal is to like eventually leave our body behind on our death and ascend to this transcendent realm. And Paul combats that with the resurrection. But if, if you're of the mind that our bodies are just naturally evil and our spirits are what are good, you can go one of two options. You can say, since our bodies are already evil and they're meant for whatever, like the body is just a body. What we do in it doesn't matter at all because it's already base. It's already low. We can sleep around. That's fine. Our spirits are disconnected from this. That's one way. The other way is since the body's evil, we need to deny all physical pleasure so we can start making our upward momentous journey to the transcendent. So people could hold this same fundamental belief about the body and physical matter being not great but go in radically different directions with it. Is that what you think is going on here? Is that what you're saying? 100%. 
So, so I think some Christians, you know, are in this, you know, somewhat platonic worldview, but they've come to faith. And um, that's why, so like in chapter six, they're saying, quote, everything's permissible for me, end quote. Paul's like, but not not everything. This is to the, like, body's bad, so let's just indulge it. Everything's permissible for me, end quote. Paul, I will not be mastered by anything. Then, food is for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. God's getting rid of all matter. Food, the body, and you'll notice in your CSB and ESV, they misplace the quotation. That quotation mark has to go all the way down to where I ended. Paul responds, however, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So Paul's saying the body is going to be restored, not destroyed. But they're saying since our body is going to be destroyed anyway, why not get it on? And misplacing that quotation mark is a big deal, right? Like, it's a huge deal because if you, yeah, if you misplace it, what comes next doesn't make any sense. Because if Paul's saying in one breath... God's going to destroy the body. And in the next breath saying, God's going to raise the body. Like, it's just nonsensical. It also makes sense then when you get to Paul trying to instruct people, okay, you think the most spiritual thing to do is to never indulge the body. Um, but you got you became a Christian and, and you were already married. And now you're wondering, should I make this a sexless marriage so I can be more spiritual to leave the passions of the body behind. That's Say a, no. That's a no. Yeah, it's a no-go. Yeah. A non-starter. Yeah. As is the opposite of Free let's sleep all. around. Yeah. Um, I want to give you, gentlemen, six reasons to flee sexual immorality. I'm going to need seven. Number one, your Christian freedom does not permit sexual immorality. Okay. Number two... Your body is not intended for sexual immorality. Number three, your union with Christ is opposed to sexual immorality. Number four, your body is harmed by sexual immorality. Number five, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And number six, your body is not your own. Every other sin a person commits, commits is outside the body, but a, the sexually immoral yeah. person sins against his own body. Yep. So it makes you into a divided person. So it's not like your body's doing something and your spirit just isn't involved. You're sinning against yourself. Can I ask about something that's potentially unpopular? I would love for you to do that. Nice. We are, if nothing else, um, an unpopular podcast. I could, yeah. because Based on the amount of monthly listens. Yeah. So if you bring up something that's unpopular, I think that fits well with our vibe as a show. All right. Yeah, good point. Good point. So what was the one that was number four or five or something about the temple, your temple? Your your body is a temple, a temple of the Holy Spirit. Mm, a temple. Other people's bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit too. Mm. I always want, because like I've, I've heard that reference, you know, a lot over the years for this is why you don't smoke your temple that's unhealthy. Or something like that. Does that different apply? Different notion. No? Different notion. Because in this case, Paul is arguing that because your body is a holy temple, uh, or, or a temple for the Holy Spirit, you are taking Christ into the bed with the prostitute. So you're joining Christ with the prostitute mm. because you are in Christ. Holy Spirit is in you. 
you are God's representative, Christ's body on earth. So joining Christ's body with a prostitute violates anything Christ would ever do and and uh, would be wiki-wiki bad-bad, as we say to little kids. So would that reference not apply to non-sexual, unhealthy actions or decisions? I mean, I don't think I would say state things that strongly. You know, Paul's stating something really strongly. You're taking Christ with you into the bed of a prostitute, and that should be clearly shocking to us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, someone might say, uh, coffee is not good for you it's for not, a lot of reasons. And and you, they might say, Christ is drinking that cup of coffee with you. And that evokes a different response. It's like, oh, grabbing coffee with the Lord, that sounds great. Uh, the other thing that Paul is saying, that that is just um, awful. Hmm. Okay. So, so I would I would not want to press this too far. Okay. Because what some people do is say anything that they don't like or approve of, you shouldn't do rationale. Your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I always think it's a little bit funny because, you know, I've heard this with regard to alcohol. I'm like, but Jesus was called a drunkard because he was drinking alcohol with people. So that one doesn't work for me. Tattoos. I, I think that's a little out of control. I just sent you a meme related to that. Well, w- all right. Laugh. What do you what do you think about this? Because yeah. talking about unpopular. Let me wait. Let, wait let let's me, quickly talk oh. about. He sent a picture of like a church with a lot of paintings on it. I and he, uh, it's like no tattoos. Thanks. My body is a temple. And then if you think about the Jewish temple. It's full of engravings and right. like gold embroidering on it. So I think we have to not press what Paul is saying beyond what he would have intended. We're reading for the authorial communicative intent. And and Paul was fine with giving his body to be whipped on behalf of Christ. And he's not saying, My body is a temple, I can't <laughs> let myself get whipped. You know, so so we can't turn this into something ridiculous and outside of what Paul is trying to communicate. I don't think the Roman guards would have cared either. Yeah, the, stop hurting me. I'm a temple. The other thing is, you know, I I always like to say if something can't pass the straight face test, it's probably not true. And the straight face test is if it makes me laugh because it's so ridiculous, it's probably not true. Mm. I mean, you could say that these Christians who are saying we should have sexless marriages, they could misappropriate what Paul says about cult prostitutes and say, you're taking Christ with you into your marriage bed and try to make it seem like you shouldn't do that either because you're, you're a temple. Well, they would be misappropriating what Paul said just to try to prove their own point. And I think people do this often, whether they're vegan people who would say you shouldn't eat meat because red meat, because it makes you aggressive or you shouldn't have someone who's like, you should never have sugar because that's bad for you. Like whatever the case might be, people like to grab onto this, but it's outside of Paul's communicative intent. Maybe this is completely irrelevant. This is referenced a bit in the Bible, but maybe it's in other ways. If people are just in very poor health, say they're just very overweight Mm -hmm. and because of it, they have issues and it makes it difficult for them to do what would maybe be considered just normal activities, and it detracts from their ability to 
server contribute? Is that a completely separate issue than like your body's a temple? Because that, that's what I think. And maybe it's just completely out of context from what they're getting at. But yeah, I would say we don't need to lean on that because there's no no time when Paul or any New Testament author deals with gluttony and connects it to your body being a, a temple of the Holy Spirit. Instead, I would want to say something like, um, why are you overweight? Maybe it's because you have a thyroid problem and there's nothing you can do about it, so don't feel guilty. Right. Know that the outer man is fading away and allow your newer person to be renewed in the glory of Christ every single day. Um, if someone is overweight because they are pursuing a life of laziness and they never get out of bed and they just watch TV and eat pizza and order food all day, well, that the their body weight is indicating sins of laziness and gluttony and probably a litany of other things. And I'd want to attack those things. I I don't want to assume that because someone is overweight that they're sinful. Um, and I don't want to say someone needs to be in athletic tip-top shape because I think of a lot of dads and moms who are carrying out their responsibilities as parents who get the well-earned dad bod badge. And that's okay. Um, I think someone who is lazy and gluttonous, that's not okay. And, and where the lines are for those things, that's hard to say. I have a question that could be just not applicable, but that's why it's a question. You, you mentioned that, you know, it's never addressed in the New Testament as far as gluttony or whatever. Well, I'm not saying gluttony is never oh. addressed in the New Testament. I'm saying that in the New Testament, there's never a connection made between your body being a holy, a, a temple of the Holy Spirit and gluttony. Oh, okay. I misunderstood you. I, I am, I know that there's at least some reference to gluttony. Maybe it's more vague, like people whose God is their belly. Like oh. they just like um, being satisfied in full in living comfortably. But the connection there isn't your body is a temple, so don't worship it. It's worship God and give yourself in service to him instead of to your own appetites. Okay, that makes sense. I don't think I have any further questions. Okay, you're getting my strong opinions on some of these things. I love it. They're slightly aggressive, but very It's all the red meat. Yeah. But I, I do think that's an important thing to talk about. Red meat? Uh, red meat. People should eat more of it. And, and about the fact that if we're carrying out our God-given responsibilities in the relationships we have, most of us are not going to be in D1 athlete shape and most of us also should not be um, egregiously sickly because we're overweight, you know, like, but there are instances where our bodies don't function as they should. And we're either hyper thin or the opposite, quite overweight. And it has nothing to do with virtue. Right. Fallen world. Sometimes it does have to do with virtue. And because it can be either, we should never look at someone in our church or anywhere and ridicule them because of what they look like or accuse them of being unvirtuous. Well, we have just a few minutes left. So AJ, what are the rest of your questions in first Corinthians one through nine? I don't have anything else that I think is, is worth talking about. 
there was this passage at the beginning of chapter 8 where it talks about, if I remember right, Paul's addressing, oh, you people, you say you have this knowledge about the situation or whatever, but you weren't walking in love. You know, read that, and then you step back. How can I apply this? Thinking, I definitely do that a whole lot in a lot of different ways. And so I just, I felt like that was a a verse that, or a passage that struck out, that a passage that stuck out to me. And struck you. And struck me. Mm. Yeah, so, I, so anyway. I think from the beginning in chapter eight, Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that they can't attain a certain knowledge that will categorize them as spiritually elite and that will remove from them the obligations that come with being a follower of Christ and a child of God, namely the obligation to love one another and to love God truly. So these individuals are saying, we can violate the Jerusalem council and eat meat offered to idols because we know that idols aren't really God. We're spiritually elite. We know something. And in doing so, they're failing to love God. And these new pagan Christians who are seeing them doing it and being led to syncretistic worship, thinking, oh, we can worship idols and Jesus. Jesus is just another dude to add to the gods we're already worshiping. So they're not loving those people. Instead, they're going to cause them to fall away from the exclusive worship of God through Christ in the Spirit. We, as usual in this podcast, have walked up and down the text of scriptures. And so we're signing off. Until next time, you can learn more at resurrectionmn.org.